Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more. Well, hello, and thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter podcast. Today's guest is, well, I wouldn't say journalism adjacent as much as she is part of the critical elements of Washington, D.C., Jennifer Johnson is a lobbyist and consultant and owner of Bighorn Public Affairs, and she has a dynamite story to tell. So I had to have her on the show. I had to hear more about what she does here inside of the Beltway and to talk about sort of all of the interconnections in the world that she does. So Jennifer, thank you so much for being with me today. Oh my goodness. Thank you for having me. I've got to get into, I've got to get into this too, because we were just chatting before we pressed record here today about how you grew up in, well, Wyoming is your home state. Um, So how in the world does a girl from Wyoming get all the way across the country and get into this business that you're in today? Tell me a little bit about your background. Oh, well, thank you. Um, You know, I went away to college in South Florida and I thought I would just be a business person. My degree is in corporate management and marketing, but um, I just got interested in Washington, not really the politics, but just the government and the, I guess, control of our country. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I wanted to move to Washington, I decided I wanted to work on Capitol Hill and most members of Congress, you know, hire from their home states. So I applied with all three of our Wyoming congressional delegation members. Wow. And um, I was very blessed to be hired by Alan Simpson. He was a United States Senator at the time, and he was the Republican whip of the uh, U.S. Senate. So that was pretty cool to have my first job, not only be working for a Senator, but be working in leadership. Absolutely. And, um, Absolutely. So that's how I got to Washington. He, um, It's kind of funny, I don't, this might be silly, but um, he gave every applicant a spelling and grammar test huh. and certainly people were applying all the time and because he was the, the assistant republican leader you know he had a lot of applicants from all over but sure. um i hit the record score on his test was minus six and that was his score and so that was kind of how he measured every applicant didn't matter what position you were um applying for so i took that test and i missed two and um, so they called me the next day and they said, you're hired. We don't have a job, but we're going to find one for you. We That's make amazing. You. Just because you're the only person who ever beat the senator. <laughs> See, my mom reminds me of that um, on a regular basis. You know, your spelling and your grammar is so important. You know, it's so interesting that you say that, too, because so much of what we do in public affairs, in the journalism space, everywhere, credibility is really sort of established from your first impression. And your first impression is always, I think, I mean, especially in an application for a job or uh, a press release that you issue to the media, if you have grammatical or spelling errors in those documents, it's an automatic, I think, disqualification in some way. Like it takes you down a peg, right? So to have that kind of small moment and then realize that actually it is a door opener and an opportunity is so neato. <laughs> Who knew, right? I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> but it's also true. So much of what um, what folks maybe might not know about Washington is that when we do move here, when we move, when we move from wherever else we're from, because most people aren't necessarily from the Beltway, inside the Beltway, mm-hmm. um, a lot of times the connections come 
from where we originate, right? So here you are, South Florida, coming up, but coming home, really, to your yes. home office for your U.S. senator and working there for some time. Tell me a little bit about that experience for you. Oh, well, it was super fun. I mean, probably the best time of my life to be in our nation's capital. And I love this city. Um, you know, I'm still here many, many years later. Same, same. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it was a great time. Um, we had a very fun office. Uh, you know, we I've formed life lasting relationships, you know, friendships. Um, it was super cool to be in leadership, right? We got to do all the fun things. We got to be invited to the White House and, and um, you know, convention and, and the political conventions and stuff. So it was it was really exciting. And tell me a little bit it. for the benefit of the listener. Uh, because you and I obviously speak Washington, so we know what a a whip is in the U.S. Senate. Sure. If you will, though, talk to me a little bit about what the senator's role was in that, because it's an elected position. His colleagues elect him to that role, and then he serves that as part of the function of the U.S. Senate. But will you tell me a little bit about sort of how that function works in the Senate? Oh, certainly. And I'd say it's... um. It's a little different now. I think it's probably oh, yeah. um, you know, certainly more technical and uh, maybe more, um, oh, I don't know, sophisticated even, because at the time we had a tiny office, his whip office in the Senate uh, could fit three people. Oh, wow. um, uh, but uh, it was really his job. You know, He worked in, in hand in hand with the Republican leader and the Republicans were in the minority at that time as Bob Dole. Um, but it was Simpson's job to whip uh, the Republicans together and to make sure that they would have enough votes each time um, a, a floor vote came up um, that they could win, right? Um, mm-hmm. That that they could uh, pass a bill. And so we had a lot of um, kind of, we had technical uh, jobs and today we didn't have the internet. This is really dating myself. Right. No. <laughs> uh, so we uh, actually had to sit there and we, every, we had, um, we were assigned it by weekly uh, all week, you'd have to sit there and watch C-SPAN mm-hmm. and type out what every senator said on the floor so that we could fax that transcript around to all of the other offices. So it was a lot of communication, right? Yep. I mean, those yep. things people don't even have to think about any longer, no. um, but we had to do those things at the time. And he just really had to kind of keep his Republican coalition together. But um, I'm really proud to have worked for Simpson because he was very bipartisan. He was very moderate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he had a weekly uh, radio show with Ted Kennedy. Uh, he was, you know, he was just, um, he wasn't uh, crazy political, right? Yeah. He was, he was a, a moderate. Um, it was such a different airman. time though. I mean, it was a time when it was, it was before the cameras arrived in the Capitol with C-SPAN and, and it was before um, as much as we, we battled over issues on the floor and in, you know, conference and in um, uh, committee rooms at the end of the day. And I worked in New Jersey politics and in the New Jersey legislature at the same time that you were in the Senate uh, at the end of, and this is not even like a, not even a colloquial phrase, but at the end of every legislative day, we would all meet for a drink after work, Republicans and Democrats and journalists yes. and everybody would all collect and share fun stories. Um, and a lot of it, polarization has changed a lot of the way the work is done. Um, Tell me a little bit from your point of view, after you leave Capitol Hill, after this amazing experience, you step out into the private sector. Talk to me a little bit about that transition and what it is that you did first after you left the Capitol. 
Oh, sure. I think it's always hard for Hill staffers to leave when you first leave, because as a Hill staffer, you know, everyone needs to talk to you. They're calling you. They need you to answer their email messages. But then Mm -hmm. when, when one leaves Capitol Hill, you're the person trying to call and get a meeting or, you, you know, you want <laughs> yeah. an answer back, a response back from your, for sure. from your call or your, your message. And so I think that hits everyone um, the hardest right away. Like, Oh, I'm not the center of uh, attention any longer. Um, but you get, you get through that and you learn how to, um, you know, you still communicate and hopefully you made a lot of relationships. And I, I, I did, I had, I worked in the Senate and then the house. So I had a good um, bicameral relationship base. Um, but it's, it was super fun. I enjoyed being a lobbyist. Um, my first job outside of Capitol Hill as a lobbyist was working for a huge law firm lobby shop downtown. And um, uh, it was odd to me because it was a legal shop. So we had to follow all of the legal rules. We had to bill, we had billable hours. And, right. and you know, so that was very different from Capitol Hill. Um, I certainly knew about it with my uh, lawyer friends, but I didn't have to do that before. So that wasn't very enjoyable for me. Um, Tell me a little bit about, as we talk about lobbying, I'm not sure that everyone that that listens into my show has a full understanding of what it is lobbyists do. Um, And I ask that question mostly because I'm curious from your point of view, how you see the industry that you are in. Unfortunately, there've been so many, I mean, movies and vilifications and you actually worked at the firm where actually the biggest villain of all time, at least in Washington, um, was at one point. And I don't need to say the name because everybody that actually cares about this would know. I'm more curious, Jennifer, from your point of view, how you see lobbying and how you define lobbying to folks that maybe aren't inside the Beltway. Oh, sure. Because I get asked that all the time. I got asked that yesterday in Wyoming, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially outside of the Beltway. But I I really think I look at myself as um, a supporter, maybe, of a congressional office. I do a lot. I do the same work as a congressional staffer does. Um, but my work or my focus is, is much more focused. It's much more targeted. Um, I'm going to that staffer, to that member with one issue, right, at a time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I certainly have more. I work on more than one issue at once, but when I'm working with a congressional office, I've got one issue and I've got all of the data and all of the backstory and, and, um, you know, articles and um, research to back up what I'm asking for or what I'm, you know, um, I don't know, I guess I've got the research, right? And all of the congressional staffers, I mean, think of a House member, um, he's got maybe seven, maybe nine congressional staffers in his or her uh, Hill office. And so they've got to split every issue under the sun amongst them. And so they've got so many issues. I try to really focus and provide them with information. I do the same job that they do. I probably focus um, maybe a little bit more on strategy, depends on what type of aid, uh, legislative aid I'm working with or a political person or a chief of staff. But a lot of my job is working on strategy. How do we get a bill, you know, through a committee? Who do we need on that committee to support us? Um, You know, in this uh, day of divided government, I think um, you have to have a leadership support, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you need your party's leadership um, certainly in that committee where your bill has jurisdiction to get that bill through committee and get to the House floor. I mean, leadership pretty much decides you know, which bills get voted on. Right. Um, so I think I provide 
I mean, I was a congressional staffer. I feel like I'm doing the exact same work that a congressional staffer does. I just, um, I, I get to focus more and provide them with information. And I try really hard. Um, you know, I always cite my sources. I want to make sure that um, I'm giving fair and accurate information. Um, I'm not so trying important. to you know, hoodwink anyone. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I work really hard on my reputation. I mean, I want to be trustworthy. I want people to have a conversation with me and trust that what I'm bringing them is um, honest and fair. And so um, I've, I've worked on that a long time. And so um, I just want to be an asset, right? Because yes. there are a lot of people and even just constituents when they come to meet with con- their members of Congress and their staffers, you know, everyone's asking for something. That, that's just how the world works. We need their help, our members of Congress. We need Congress to help us. And so I just don't want to be a burden. I really want to help them, um, you know, pass a certain piece of legislation or let's get um, some reform or regulations, right. you know, changed. And a big part of your work uh, is very much about communication, open lines of communication. If there's a piece of legislation, for instance, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but if there's something that you, um, in, in the, your client set, the folks that you work for, that you advocate on behalf of their issues, um, you're bringing information to members of Congress about how the issue is affecting maybe the the state that they represent, maybe the constituency that they represent on the committee, really a big part of your job every single day is to be talking, communicating and advocating for your clients, but also acting as a really like a well-sourced and well-reputed resource to those, those members of staff, but also in the Senate and the house. And that's, I think something you really hit on something for me that I think is tremendously important in this town is, is reputation. Um, and that's, I think, something that we all really guard very closely, some better than others. Some pride themselves on the reputations that maybe you and I might not pick out for ourselves, but everyone has one. And I do think that being an advocate for issues, relying on facts with well-sourced information, to me, is the best way that your work is conducted. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, Shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I completely agreed. And I call myself, well, for my clients, you know, I'm, I'm the face of my clients in Washington, D.C. I mean, none of my clients are based in D.C. Um, plenty are in the West, you know, 2,000 miles away. And so I'm there. I also say I'm their boots on the ground. You know, I'm the one walking around the halls of Congress. And when people see my faces and when members of Congress see my face, they think about my client. Right. And and so I need to represent my client as best as I can. You've recently been I mean, 
it is widely known in town and Washington here that you've recently been a really big advocate for a really big issue. Will you tell me a little bit about the pipeline story and, and what it is that you've it, you've recently had a really big win, and I want you to tell me in your own words sort of how that came together. I know you won't take the credit for it, which is exactly the kind of reputation that people like you and I prefer to have, but I'm going to ask you to take take a minute and get out of your comfort zone and, and brag a little bit about this great win that you've had for your clients. Oh, thanks. It's, it is super exciting. Um, I represent uh, Equitrans Midstream and they are building and they will operate the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which goes through Virginia and West Virginia. And this, you know, they, they started building this pipeline in 2018 and they had all their federal permits and it takes years to get federal permits, you know, and they had numerous ones with different federal agencies. And, um, but the permits kept getting challenged in court. And then the court would stay the construction. But um, over the years, they did get to where they're 94% complete. So that pipeline is in the ground. It's roughly 300 miles. So there's there's just a few miles left to go. But the construction's been stayed um, for over two years. And um, the Biden administration uh, just uh, issued the last set of permits. Well, it's, it's not the last set. It's the third set. Uh, uh-huh. So three different times they've received these federal permits because every time the court just returned the permits to the federal agencies, then they had to do them again. So here the Biden administration was issuing the permits, but we still couldn't get this court um, to stop, to stop um, <laughs> ruling against the pipeline. Yeah. Um, and, and they were ruling against it. We, we think it was very biased. I mean, we certainly have the uh, background there to, to make that claim, I would say. Sure. But um, we've, we worked really hard, especially this calendar year. Last year, you saw a lot of headlines with Senator Manchin, and he is the biggest supporter of this pipeline on the Democratic side. And um, But, you know, Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia and then Carol Miller from West Virginia, um, uh, they're, they're just as biggest supporters. And so this year we really had to work in the House of Representatives because I think Senator Manchin and Senator Capito had the the Senate um, figured out kind of. And so just this calendar year, um, we had to do a lot of strategizing. We had to do a lot of work. And and, um, I mean, we we walked, I I can't tell you every day, you know, I I aim for that 10,000 steps. We were doing 20,000 steps each day, just, you know, meeting from meeting to meeting to meeting and really focusing on the House and and really focusing on House Republicans, because a lot of Republicans actually both in the House and the Senate saw this as a mansion project. But it's it's not as a project for um, the mid-Atlantic because they need that natural gas just to make just to build new homes. They don't have gas to to provide the electricity. So. um so we had to do a lot of work really on the Republican side to get members of Congress to understand the project by itself without the Republican Democrat political side or the, or the mansion support. You know, some people just thought, oh, that's a mansion project. Why do I need to worry? To, you know, why do I need to help right. him? He's up for reelection. It's such so. a, it's such a Washington thing too. And, and it Jennifer, is. the reason, the reason why I wanted you to tell me about the pipeline in your words is because anyone watching from outside of DC saw the 15 votes for speaker. They saw the every single day, there's another story in mainstream media talking about how difficult it is to get the house of representatives, today's house of representatives, like 2023's house to coalesce around an issue and to get anything passed. 
And this is a big piece of a lot of what's happening. A lot of the discussion about, we talk about energy, we talk about energy independence here in the U.S. We talk about access to, uh, to resources, natural resources that are right here on our continent. And then also we talk about um, permitting and permitting reform. And that's a, that's a buzzy Washington, D.C. conversation that folks are having right now. But this really is um, probably the, the, story that I think of the most when we talk about permitting and permitting reform, that need to be able to, if we're going to be energy independent, if we in the U.S. are going to be, continue to lead and drive and, and build and offer, you know, all the economic security that we're hoping to, we have to set politics aside and we have to look at like specific issues like this one. Um, and that's so huge that you have done that in, in a time that is so difficult to get anything done. So that's, to me, just outside looking in, that's why this is such a tremendous win. So the the final piece came through in another package of legislation. Is that right? That's right. And and that's something we, I think all of us lobbyists, all, everybody in Congress, right, has to deal with right now. You must find a bigger piece of legislation that it has to be a must pass mm. bill because there's you know thousands of bills introduced to each Congress that go nowhere because of our crazy divided government right now. Mm. And um, so it was part of the, this pipeline was part of the fiscal responsibility act, which was the debt ceiling legislation that had to pass, right. And had to become law. And so it was very difficult, but um, that's probably why this was such a great achievement um, for us because we were able to get it in a piece of must pass legislation. And, and um, you know, you can't just, this pipe was sitting out there in, in the ground anyway, let's finish it and cover the ground up right. and make everyone happy. Yeah. Especially um, at a time so that, when, when Republicans and Democrats were fighting over, should it be a clean debt ceiling, which basically means that it's just language about the debt ceiling. You and I both know that nothing in Washington ever does. I mean, they, I, we, we all joke about how it's a Christmas tree with all the ornaments hanging off of it, but that is exactly the most, the most visual representation of how we do legislating right now. So congratulations to you and congratulations to your client. Um, I'm sure there'll be more hurdles to get over because that's always the way yes. this thing goes. But this is one really big one that's been standing in the way for you guys for a long time. So especially now, especially given all of the politics and everything that's happening, this is tremendous. And I'm sure that the folks in West Virginia and Virginia are pleased too that the progress now will continue. I think most are, and it's going to provide you know millions of dollars in um, tax benefits and royalties to the counties, and not even just to the whole states, but to the counties specifically where the pipeline runs. So it's pretty local, bringing back the bacon. So that's amazing. Um, I think it's amazing. It was, and it was super fun. It, it was really fun, but it's it's the hardest I've worked in a very long time. I mean, <laughs> I bet. We were working every day. I bet. I bet. And those are hard miles too. For those who haven't walked the hills and the <laughs> and the halls of the Capitol and all those buildings, those are the hardest floors ever. It's ever. True. Uh, and I then feel for like, a woman, I'm normally wearing high heels, which is the dumbest thing in the world. Yeah. You're gonna but need I continue to do so. <laughs> we all do. I have <laughs> I have the so the, the sorest feet on the planet just thinking about the days that I worked in the Capitol. But with great shoes, you know, you gotta give the great shoes an opportunity too. Um all right. All the joking aside, though, Jennifer, since you have started in the lobbying world, it has really changed mm -hmm. uh, in terms of lots of different contours, lots of different things that are happening. Um, impressions of the work that you do is perceived to be nefarious. Tell me a little bit about, from your point of view, how it's changed 
the way that you do your work? Well, um, over the course of my career, certainly, I think the most glaring change is the gift ban um, that came into effect. And it was that was 2006. And, and that was all due to this crazy uh, you know, lobbyist who broke laws. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there, we have ethics in place in the House and the Senate. We have laws in place in the House and the Senate that regulate how lobbyists can act towards members of Congress. And those laws were broken. Those ethics rules were broken. And the people who broke them were caught and prosecuted and many served time in, in, in jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it could have um, corrected itself. I mean, the, the, the system worked in my opinion. However, Congress took those extra steps to change the gift ban, which really I think affected um, congressional staffers because in my opinion, congressional staffers are the least paid um but most highly educated yes. uh, staffers. I mean, if you take their their annual salary and divide it by the hours they work, because there's no 40 hour work week on Capitol Hill, as you know, it's a no. 50, 60, 70 hour work week. So they're really not paid that well, but they put in a lot of time. Um, and so to, to change that all of a sudden, and so where they couldn't have lunch purchased for them, or they couldn't have you know, dinner purchased for them, it really changed the, it was like a, sudden inflation and um, increase for a congressional staffer to have to pay for a lot of their meals or, or let's say a cocktail after work or a beer or something. I think that was hard. I think on the lobbying side, that was hard for lobbyists because we were able to, if I was able to offer to take someone to lunch, then I had a whole hour with that person. And over lunch, you know, you, you, you talk about your congressional issue or your piece of legislation, but you also get to know the person you have social time. And so I think that was hard. Um, And I I feel sorry for lobbyists now, um, younger lobbyists that never had that experience because you, it, it makes it harder to have the time to spend with congressional staffers. And, and I can tell you that certainly on my side, just because a, a staffer got a nice lunch or, you know, we used to be able to take them to the athletic games and, you know, concerts and we had the tickets, right? So that was fun. You got to go to a sporting event. Well, there's two to three hours. So you just had time with someone really helped you build relationships. I think that for me was a big change. Yes. Um, we, we get through it, sure. but um but that's a big, that's a great point. No, that's it's a great point because um, so much of our world, like the politics and the you know talking to journalists and talking to staffers and really everything that we do is social. Uh, whether it's you know over lunch, whether it's a connection in the hallway. I mean, they call you lobbyists because y'all are walking around the lobbies <laughs> of the Capitol and all of the you know the congressional offices and the state houses, et cetera. Um, and having that taken away, which didn't allow them to accept, even if it's a, you know, it's, it's under a very low dollar. So you'll have to go out for a slice of pizza or like something. Right. And they very, have to pay. And they still have to pay for themselves, even though they're making a fraction of, of what the rest of the city is making. Uh, and you're right, giving so much of their time to to these great big jobs that they serve for very, very low pay. That's such an interesting inflection point. And it was, it was really critical and different when that happened 
um, here in town and continues to be one where people are figuring out how to offer a, a gathering event at a certain threshold so folks can pay their $25 so they can come and be part of the activities that are going on so they can network and be um, knowing more because they need us as much as we need them a lot of times for information and for access and for whatever it is they need in terms of being able to do their jobs well. Certainly. I agree with that. I think that was the biggest change. What else in your uh, experience now today, what are you looking towards? Like, what does the rest of this year look like for you and your clients? It's a busy year and we're turning ourselves over in what feels like a minute to the presidential election, which typically grinds this city to a halt <laughs> in terms of legislative exactly. action. What kinds of things, what are, what are the, the milestones or the events that you're looking forward to this year that will be um, at least sort of marks that you'll look to for success for your clients? Oh, sure. Well, just like you mentioned, it is a big year. Um, the appropriations bills are always um, very big things for my clients. Cause of course that's the way that the federal government gets funded. And um, I have two, uh, I represent two rural water projects in the state of Montana. And so they completely depend on funding that comes through the department of the interior um, and so federal appropriations um, are key. You know, that's their lifeblood. So um, I work a lot with the appropriations process. And this year, of course, we have the farm bill. Um, that's huge. It's got a lot of, well, I mean, of course, it's agriculture, it's farms, but there's also forestry, a big forestry part in the farm bill that I work on for my clients in the West. Um, per- that I work on because my focus is really energy, natural resources. Um, I'm an all of the above uh, energy. Yeah, I was going to ask. So typically it's energy, agriculture. It's the the big Western caucus type issues. Really, that's that's where I focus. Um, I guess just because, you know, I came from Wyoming. I and the house member that I worked for, uh, he was a Colorado congressman, Joel Heffley, but he was a subcommittee chairman on the natural resources committee. So it just, that's just the path I- yeah, it just fits it's natural, out. I guess, right? A natural <laughs> path. So, um, and what else? So permitting reform is huge because as we were talking about before, you were talking about with permitting. I mean, it, it's it's hard for pipelines to get permitted, but it's hard for wind projects and solar projects to get permitted right now. And um, that's really, I think, where I spend a lot of my time is with federal permits and on public lands. Um, I work for a company right now that's just trying to build a radio tower out in the desert in Nevada, but, huh. um, it's public land. So there's a lot more hoops to jump through. And, and, um, I work for, uh, an energy company that builds, um, electrical transmission lines and, um, and solar projects and such. And so permitting reform is huge. Um, uh, a couple, probably four years ago, I helped to get, um, the United States first, uh, magnesium mine federally permitted. I'm pretty happy about that. Um, it takes a long time. And like I mentioned my rural water projects, I mean, both of them have been working with the federal government for over 20 years to get their federal permits. And so that's really because of the length of time it was taking and the bureaucracy that they have to go through and the, the um, studies that the land has to go through. I think that's why they hire lobbyists just to have somebody in Washington, D.C. to focus on their issue and to make sure that um, Congress and the federal agencies, you know, listen to them. It, it, it is kind of too bad that that this is how our system is, but 
our system is so We're big and there are so many the, yeah, issues just, to deal with. That's right. How do you keep your issue at the top of the pile? It's, it's very difficult. Yeah, it is. And it's also, um, it's frustrating to know that those kinds of projects, which are designed to be, you know, the betterment of the U S the betterment of our economy, the betterment of our communities, government does sometimes on purpose and sometimes not on purpose stand in the way of progress. So having someone like you, that's their advocate here in town is so incredibly important. But I have to ask when you're not doing the work that you're doing here um, inside the beltway, what kinds of things, what's keeping you busy in your, in your personal life? Oh, my, I have a 15 year old son and he keeps me so busy and uh, because he's a sports guy. So he plays on, you know, the high school baseball team and basketball team. And then he plays travel baseball. And I, I used to have a much greater role and be team mom and such, but now I, I'm the driver, right? He's 15. <laughs> he's pretty cool, but he needs to be driven everywhere 18 times a day. I feel. Yeah. Yep. And um, so I think most of my time is spent um, certainly on my son and in my neighborhood um, with the, you know, parents of other children, yep. other teenagers. Yep. And, um, you know, he's going to be a sophomore in high school. So we're coming into all the fun teenage problems right now or Absolutely. teenage things we have to deal with and he's driving. And so I teach driving a lot and he's driving my car, which drives me nuts because, you know, he's going to ding my car. So <laughs> we're living the same life, Jennifer. I have a rising sophomore too. So we are aging. You don't look it, but I know we're aging by a thousand years internally <laughs> every time we get yes. behind get into the passenger seat with these people and move them around, but we're doing the best we can. Right. I mean, we're just trying to get them out there and get them to launch, um, which is awesome. And it just goes to show that, I mean, part of the reason why I always ask that question is because I want everybody that, that does tune into the podcast to realize we're all kind of living the same life. And those of us that live inside of Washington know that like you've been on, you've been in class trips where you're looking across the aisle at somebody who works on the Hill and another friend who's a journalist and someone, cause this town is just full of company people that are doing the work that we do every single day. That's for sure. So as we get to the end of our conversation, I always ask for a recommendation for another guest. So uh, who do you recommend I talk to for a future episode of the show? Well, um, I would recommend um, that you talk to Mike Liptak. And uh, he is um, with the Consumer Brands Association. And he, and let's see, um, when I first started my own lobby shop, it was in, it was in 2000. Mm -hmm. 2001. There we go. It was January 1, 2001. And uh, Mike was the first person that we hired. And um, so I've known him for a very long time. And we hired him from Capitol Hill. Actually, he came out of uh, Senator McConnell's office. And um, he's had a stellar career for himself. But um, now he's with uh, consumer products and um, consumer brands, I should say. But um, I think he's a he's a star. I think he awesome. I think he would love to talk with you. Good. Well, he's on my list. I'm going to tell him you nominated him and we're going to keep, and we're going to keep track of all the cool things that you're doing here inside of Washington. We'll have you back again (laughs) soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it so much. Oh, I appreciate it. I enjoyed myself too. Thank you. And there you have it. Another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast in partnership with PR Daily and coming soon to a platform near you on Big Wig Podcasts. See you next week.